Now then, <clears throat> so this is episode one of my podcast, Chopped, Strength Through Vulnerability. They always say to write about what you know. So in this, my first attempt at a pod and the subsequent recordings, I'm going to talk about something I know about, the amputation of my left arm, life before and after the event. And I recognise that just talking about the chop has its limitations. So I'm also going to try to incorporate in a few tales, try to get some guests on, people I know, people I've got to know as a result of my operation. So I've sounded a few people out who I think are interesting and have a tale to tell, and they've said they'll give it a go. But before getting too ahead of myself, initially I thought I'd have a go on my own. In this first episode, I'm going to jump back nine months to the halcyon days of having a pair of arms, back to the days where I didn't truly understand the seriousness of the situation. The moment I found out the severity of the situation and those fear-laden days leading up to the operation. In episode two, I'm going to speak about coming round after my surgery and my time in hospital. Throughout these initial pods, I'm going to repeatedly refer back to what I've done to navigate the cold, dark winter months of recovery, coming to terms with and accepting what has happened. This is what this podcast and what starting up my own brand have been about. Once it was decided that I would be undergoing a full four-quarter amputation, one of my initial thoughts was, fuck, how am I going to get through winter having had my arm cut off, unable to surf? Surfing for me is much more than riding waves. It's something I turn to in times of stress or anxiety or just general low mood to help redress the balance. Without it, I knew I would have to find things to do to fill the void left by not being able to surf. I'm not a winter person at the best of times. I struggle with winter and so does my mental and emotional well-being. I'm really proud of myself, proud of the way I've been proactive in managing my mental and emotional well-being through this winter. It's not been easy. There's been some really dark moments and days, but with spring fast approaching, I feel like I'm coming out of winter energised and with lots to look forward to and be positive about. Before jumping back to the start of last summer, and this is probably going to sound a bit odd, or maybe not, there's a sort of sense of liberation to be had in the loss of a limb, a sense of freedom that strangely comes with it. And what I mean by this is I feel a sense of freedom to do things I previously wouldn't have thought I could do. This podcast, for example, I'm putting this out there at the start. I'm doing this in spite of the voice in my head, telling me I can't do a podcast, that it'll be rubbish, that no one will listen, 
that people will think my 23 minutes of fame on the radio has gone to my head. So many reasons spring to mind, all negative, all telling me I can't do this. This is what I mean about the sense of liberation. Here I am, I'm doing it. It probably will be shit. Certainly the sound quality will be, given I'm recording it on a £30 mic off Amazon and using GarageBand on my iPad. It's never going to have the production quality of something recorded in a studio or at the very least with a podcast starter kit. I could reel off loads of reasons why I can't do it. But what's happened has, if anything, inspired and motivated me to do things I don't or didn't think I could do. It's more than likely that there will be no listeners. This has come as a result of speaking on the radio, so if that's a criticism that's levelled at me, I'll have to accept it. The sense of liberation plays out here. There's nothing anyone can say to me about this podcast, about my brand chopped or about me, that will ever be as devastating as being told that there is a possibility you may lose your arm. The only thing that could have been said to me that would have been worse than that would have been they couldn't operate, that the tumour was too big to get out, that I didn't have an option. And that meant counting down the days to death. So I'm doing this for myself, for my own enjoyment, and for the sense of achievement gained from engaging in the creative process and challenging my own negative internal monologue. The speed with which things happened from last May onwards was such that my feet didn't really touch the ground. From finding a lump in my neck at the end of May to waking up an amputee on the evening of Thursday the 4th of August all took place in under 10 weeks. Things really started to get going at the start of June. I took a phone call from the ENT doctor who I'd first been referred to. He told me the lump in my neck was a sarcoma and that I'd be referred to Derryford as they didn't deal with sarcomas at Trillisk. Looking back, this was significant. I now know that very little is known about sarcomas. There seems to literally be scores of different sarcomas, but generalising, sarcomas are a cancer of the soft tissue or bone. As in my case, there were no warning signs, there was nothing to indicate I was so poorly that I'd need to have my arm amputated. I think that's why sarcoma is so deadly. Before you know it, it's grown and spread to such an extent that you've passed the point of salvation. In the period between the initial consultation to being told what the lump was, was about two weeks. In those two weeks, I was waiting and I was hoping to be told that it isn't that serious. I'd read around the topic of sarcomas on the internet and a lot of what I read suggested good survival rates and that often a sarcoma can be cured with surgery. Reading that, I thought, sort of, I'll go under the surgeon's knife, they'll cut out the tumour and I'll be good to go. 
I never envisaged or expected the surgery to be as drastic and as life-changing as it went on to be. Nothing can prepare you for what I was told. The moment Professor Ricard said to me, there is a possibility and it's a far right possibility, but you may lose your arm. That was like a nuclear bomb had been detonated inside me. I was simultaneously numb, but at the same time, I had a thousand thoughts racing around my head. Obviously they don't dive straight in and tell you the worst case scenario. Before all that was explained to me, I was told the type of tumour I had, a myxofibrosarcoma. Just the name of it sounds bad. I was informed of the size of it, how both the size and position of the tumour made getting it out a challenging operation. I was told that with this type of tumour, good practice is to remove the tumour with at least 10 millimetres of healthy flesh around it. Even at this point, they were saying, if that was not possible, removing the tumour with the 10 millimetres of healthy flesh around it, then a marginal incision may be the way forward. As Professor Rickard was speaking, a few thoughts were going through my mind. First one, shit. This sounds like fucking complicated surgery. Secondly, I knew there was a big book coming. And finally, I couldn't shake a voice in my head that kept piping up. He really reminds me of Hastings from Line of Duty. As I feared, there was a book coming and that book was the far right possibility here is you may lose your arm. My immediate reaction was, you can't take my arm. I listed all the reasons for that, but it was Lieutenant Colonel Taylor stood at the back of the room who said, this will kill you. From that point, they were keen to stress, it's not guaranteed that an amputation would be necessary, but it's something I needed to be aware of. To get a clearer picture, they sent me for another more detailed scan and a secondary consultation was arranged for the following week. I've never been more apprehensive in my whole life as I was that following Tuesday. We could hear them chatting in the room next door and at some points laughing. Hearing them laughing, I dared to dream that it wasn't so serious a situation that it was going to be necessary to lop off my arm that there was some marvel of modern medical science that was going to come to my aid and save both me and my arm. But there wasn't. Joining Professor Rickard, Lieutenant Colonel Taylor, the Macmillan nurses, Olivia and Liz, was a cardiothoracic surgeon, Mr. Adrian Marchbank. The consultation began with Professor Rickard asking me how I felt about what had been said a week earlier, to which I replied, well, I know you said there's a possibility I might lose my arm. And if I recount this inaccurately or attribute things that were said to the wrong person, then I apologise. I should also state that the way the news was conveyed to me was done in the best way it could be. 
No amount of sugar coating could make the news I was about to receive more palatable. I think it was Mr. Marchbank who said, you are going to lose your left arm, but it's also going to be necessary to remove the collarbone, the shoulder, three ribs, and the proportion of the chest wall, at which, at which point I think he outlined on me how I'd look after the surgery. He asked me to make a fist and then bring that fist down three times from the collarbone. That was the extent of the tumour's reach. So getting it out wasn't going to be straightforward and involved complicated multidisciplinary surgery that would take up to 12 hours. Hearing the news that I would be undergoing such radical life-changing surgery, strangely didn't hit as hard as the news the week before. Perhaps deep down I knew and that I'd already resigned myself to the loss of my arm. It was at this point, Catherine, my wife, who the week before got the wedding proposal every girl dreams of in the car park at the back of Derryford, following the announcement her partner is going to have his arm amputated, simply stated, so we're going far right then. The conversations went on for a little longer, up until the moment Catherine again asked, when will you be looking to operate? Bearing in mind this consultation took place on the second week of July, neither of us were expecting them to say August the 4th. And Catherine again questioned that, asking, why is that? Is it nearing his heart? I don't know who answered that question, but it wasn't nearing my heart, it was inching closer to my lungs. There are some lines that will live with me forever, and one such line came from Professor Ricard, who said, there's no easy way out of this for you. Driving home following that consultation, I think we were both in shock. A thousand thoughts were racing around my head. That night I went surfing. I don't think I caught a single wave. My body was in the ocean, but my mind was elsewhere. I had to face up to the reality that in less than three weeks time, I would be having my left arm and a good chunk of my upper left torso surgically removed. The scale and the complexities of the surgery really frightened me. I was genuinely scared that I might not make it off the surgeon's table alive. Prior to the surgery, I was more concerned with the surgery, the practicalities of it, what the process would be, and my chances of survival. I didn't give a huge amount of thought or consideration to life as an amputee. I was far more preoccupied with whether I would survive 12 hours in surgery. This was something I repeatedly asked and another line that sticks with me came again from Professor Ricard, who said to me, we will get you through this. This is what we do. I held on to that line in the weeks, days, hours and minutes before the operation. I said it back to Professor Ricard a number of times, perhaps most poignantly when I spoke to them 
on the morning of the operation. Prior to going down to surgery, I was visited by Professor Ricard. I was asked to remove the surgical gown and in marker pen he drew a great big arrow pointing to my left arm, to which I sort of joked, is that so you don't get the wrong arm? And yeah, it was. It's bad enough going into surgery to have your left arm amputated. Imagine waking up and they've whipped off the wrong limb. When they left, it was just Catherine and I for a few minutes. Part of me thought I'd never see Catherine, my children, my parents, my friends again. But also part of me, the part which clung to Professor Ricard's words, we will get you through this, did believe that I'd be seeing her again in 12 hours time. Once those few minutes had elapsed, one of the anaesthetists came to get me to take me down to surgery. Professor Ricard had said to me a number of times, you can stop this train and get off whenever you want. The only time it's too late to get off is when you've gone under. But the point of no return was upon me. There was no turning back now, not given what I knew. We'd had a final meeting with the surgical team on the Tuesday, two days before the op on the Thursday. During this meeting, I'd asked again about the surgical procedure. I basically wanted to know whether there was any chance upon opening me up that they'd discovered the situation might not have been as bad as thought. I was keen to know at what point my arm would be detached from my body. So I had the operation explained to me. It begins with an incision around my collarbone, opening up effectively a flap of skin, enabling them to access the tumour. It was only then they'd know for certain if they'd be able to remove the tumour. Up until this point, there'd been no mention of not being able to remove it. The obvious question had to be asked. And if you can't remove it, we stitch you back up and you're on your way. And what does that mean? That would mean palliative care. So waking up and coming round, still in possession of four limbs, my left arm intact, meant I would be on death row. They were very keen to stress that the scans they had were very detailed and they were very confident they would be able to successfully remove the tumour. So having opened me up, I think the procedure went as follows. The blood vessels, nerves and muscles out to my arm had to be cut and the bleeding managed. From here, I think the next stage was to take out the collarbone, allowing them access to the site of the tumour. From here, my left lung was collapsed in order to remove the three ribs and proportion of the chest wall. Once this was done, I think this was the point where my arm and the tumour were removed as one. The next stage would be to fit a plate. The plate would replace my ribs and my chest wall. This was essential as it would form part of the diaphragm, giving my left lung something to expand into. Once all that was done, a flap of skin would be pulled over the place my left arm had resided for 47 years. With that complete, the surgical process would be done. As I said earlier, it was expected to take between 10 and 12 hours. As I walked down the hospital corridor with the anaesthetist, I felt fairly relaxed. Onto the bed, ready for the anaesthetic, ready to do the countdown from 10. I don't think I've ever got as far as five when having a general anaesthetic and this day was no different. 
And that's where I'm going to end this, the first episode of Chopped Strength Through Vulnerability. I'd like to think I'm leaving the story delicately poised on a knife edge with listeners eagerly awaiting the next instalment. But ultimately, but ultimately, most people know what came next. In episode two, I'll share with you my immediate recollections of coming round and how it felt waking up as an amputee. If you like this pod and want to hear more, you know what to do. Subscribe, like and share. And I'd be massively grateful if you can spread the word. Thank you.